Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Betsy and Wally Stern Conference Center here at Hudson Institute. I'm John Walters, President and CEO of Hudson. Thank you for joining us for this event with 2024 Republican presidential candidate, Mr. Vivek Ramaswamy. Hudson Institute has invited all the major presidential candidates of both parties to present their views on national security at Hudson. While we have experts that do analysis and make policy recommendations in a full range of national security policies, we know that free and open debate is critical to a healthy democracy. So far, we have heard from Vice President Mike Pence, Senator Tim Scott, Governor uh, Doug Burgum. Our future speakers include Governor Chris Christie and Ambassador Nikki Haley. Today, we are joined by Mr. Ramaswani. Welcome. He is, of course, a New York Times best-selling author and a successful entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur, he was a founder and was executive chairman of, uh, is it Royvant uh, uh, Sciences, a biopharmaceutical company focused on applying technology for drug development. He established Royvant in 2014 and led the largest biotech IPO in, of 2015 and 2016, resulting in successful clinical trials and multiple, in multiple disease areas and FDA-approved products. He was born, as many of you already know, to immigrant parents and raised in Ohio. Mr. Ramaswamy graduated from Harvard College and earned his JD from Yale Law School. In 2015, he was featured on the cover of Ford Magazine for his contributions to drug development. In, in 2020, he emerged as a prominent commentator on stakeholder capitalism, free speech, woke culture. And as he notes, Mr. Ramaswamy is an example of American opportunity. He will make some opening remarks, followed by a conversation with Mike Duran, Hudson's senior fellow and director of our Middle East Center. And he will conclude with some audience questions. So without further ado, the floor is yours, Mr. Ramaswamy. Thank you for the warm welcome, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. I am here principally to dis discuss a vision of my foreign policy, but wanted to ground all of you, who I'm, many of whom I'm meeting for the first time, in the vision for our American revival and where my foreign policy agenda fits in. My view is that we are in the middle of a national identity crisis today. We lack a good answer to the question of what it even means to be an American. I'm 38 years old. I'm the youngest person ever to run for U.S. president as a Republican. And I think if you ask most people my age, what does it mean to be an American, you get a blank stare in response. That is the vacuum. That is the void at the heart of our national soul. And I believe that if we deliver an answer to that question, revive the ideals of the American Revolution, that is how we dilute the poison to irrelevance wokeism, to transgenderism, to climatism, to covidism, depression, anxiety, fentanyl. These are symptoms of a deeper void of purpose and meaning. Now, one of my goals here domestically, it's not the topic of our discussion today, is to revive those 1776 ideals in our culture in the United States of America. But I also consider myself to be a George Washington, America first conservative when it comes to our foreign policy. Revive the Washington Doctrine. Revive the vision in 1776. 
revive the vision of George Washington's farewell address when it comes to our foreign policy in putting American interests first. And that's what I'm going to talk about today, principally as it relates to a new vision for realism in our foreign policy that departs from the consensus of the last 25 years. And I'm looking forward to a thought-provoking conversation with, with Mike Duran, as well as with all of you in the audience, very shortly. I'd summarize my foreign policy in a nutshell with three simple objectives. Avoid World War III. Declare economic independence from China. And then secure the American homeland, protecting our own borders and bringing cyber defenses, super EMP, electromagnetic pulse defenses, nuclear missile defenses, space-based defenses that were missing here in the United States. A few weeks ago, I gave a speech in central Ohio at a manufacturing firm that was onshoring production from the U.S. to China, laying out a pragmatic strategy for how we could actually declare economic independence from our enemy, communist China, in a way that doesn't really disrupt the U.S. economy as much as we're taught to believe. Last week, I visited the U.S. southern border, laying out a vision for how we ultimately fortify our homeland defenses right here at home. And the subject of my speech today is how we avoid a slow, but I worry, steady march towards World War III in a way that would not advance American interests. I want to lay out my core pillars of what I consider to be a revival of realism in our foreign policy. The moral obligation of the next U.S. president, if I'm elected your new next U.S. president, my moral obligation to you as the citizens of this country is to put the interests of American citizens first, full stop, without apologizing for it. Of course, we're going to require allies to achieve that, but that is a means to the end of exclusively advancing the American interest. The decision to go to war, should we ever make one, should be a necessity, not a choice or a preference. Military engagement should never be a moral crusade or a substitute for social work, but a necessity. And perhaps most importantly of all, we require transparency and open debate, not just in normal times, but especially during times of crisis or during times of war. I say this in part biased by the generation I'm a member of. I'm 38 years old. As I said, I grew up into watching the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, wondering now, six and a half trillion dollars in, thousands upon thousands of innocent American lives sacrificed, wondering to what end we entered these wars? In Iraq, we still have a hostile anti-American regime vulnerable to Iranian incursion. In Afghanistan, a Taliban that is still in charge that was the same Taliban that was in charge long before we entered Afghanistan. I'm keen to make sure that we don't repeat those same mistakes here in the United States today. And I worry that we are paving the path to larger scale conflict that repeats those mistakes, not at the same scale, but that at a larger scale than ever before. So I'm going to kick this off, foregrounding our discussion before I speak to Mike. I'm looking forward to that conversation. Going around a couple of the areas where I see the greatest risks, it's certainly the areas that are at the top of your minds as well, offering my perspective, which run a little bit contrary to those of the rest of the Republican field. And that'll be a good way to practice what we preach when it comes to free speech and open debate as we head into potentially major conflict that I'm concerned about. Let's start with the war in Ukraine. I do not believe that this war advances American interests. To the contrary, I am deeply concerned 
that we are marching our way into major conflict with a nuclear power in Russia at a moment where we have, for the first time since the early 1970s, found ourselves in a moment of no nuclear nonproliferation agreement between the United States and Russia. I worry that the Russia-China alliance is the single greatest threat to the future existence of the United States of America. Russia matches, outmatches us in its nuclear capabilities, in its hypersonic missile capabilities. China outmatches us in its naval capacity, and even more importantly, is an economy that we depend on for our own modern way of life. Today, those two countries are allied with one another, and I worry that our continued engagement militarily in Ukraine is driving Russia further into China's hands by the day, strengthening that Russia-China military alliance. I'm well aware that Vladimir Putin is not a trustworthy partner of the United States. I do not trust Vladimir Putin. But just because Putin is an evil dictator, just because Putin is bad, does not automatically mean that Ukraine is good. To the contrary, this is a country that has banned 11 opposition parties, that has consolidated all TV media into one state TV media arm, has implicitly threatened the United States not to hold its elections this year unless we fork over more money. Its leader Zelensky, even very recently, implicitly praising a Nazi in his own ranks. It's the Russian-speaking regions of Ukraine that are actually occupied now. You can see it in the map in front of you, regions like Luhansk and Donetsk, principally Russian-speaking, where many of the people don't even view themselves as part of Ukraine. Russian-speaking regions that have not been represented in the Ukrainian parliament for the better part of the last decade. Those are facts against the backdrop of which we have to make decisions about the future of U.S. engagement. So my view is that the correct answer here is to provide a reasonable path to peace, a deal that would quickly end this war, that would, for most, make a hard commitment that NATO does not admit Ukraine to NATO, something that respects the commitment that James Baker made to Gorbachev in 1990, the not one inch commitment that NATO would expand not one inch past East Germany. And further even, yes, freezing the current lines of control approximately where they are, ceding those Russian-speaking regions to Russia, but not for free. To the contrary, advancing American interests in the process by requiring that in return for that deal, Vladimir Putin and Russia exit its military alliance with China, thereby weakening and disbanding the single greatest threat to the United States of America today, that is the Russia-China military alliance. There'd be other elements of that deal we can talk about in the Q&A. I think it could be an opportunity for the removal of a Russian military presence in the Western Hemisphere that doesn't help American interests, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and elsewhere. This is an opportunity for requiring that Russia remove its nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad, the region of Russia that borders Poland. But this is an opportunity for us to ask the question that we always must ask in any foreign conflict. How does U.S. engagement further advance U.S. interests? That's how we would do it in Ukraine. But instead, I worry that we are escalating a conflict, increasing the risk of potential nuclear engagement by Russia, tactical nuclear weapons or otherwise, and pushing them further into a corner into China, where right now I don't believe Putin enjoys being Xi Jinping's little brother, but we're forcing him to be that at a moment where still every time that they meet, 
Putin will still send weapons to India and to Vietnam, showing us that there are kinks in that armor. This is our moment to exploit the kinks in that armor to actually pull apart the two allies, Russia and China, that together threaten the United States today. At that same time that we're seeing an escalating conflict in Ukraine, we're now seeing, of course, as, as well known to everyone in this room, concerning conflict in the Middle East surrounding, surrounding Israel. Now, what happened to Israel, what Hamas did to Israel, it was wrong. It was barbaric. It was medieval. It was immoral. And Israel absolutely has the full right to defend itself and its right to existence. The United States should support Israel's existence diplomatically, making sure that international institutions from the UN on downward don't create a false equivalence between Israel's right of national self-defense and the actions of the terrorists who attack Israel, creating the need for its national self-defense. At the same time, I am very worried about the pending ground invasion in Gaza, which I do not believe will advance Israel's best interests, but that's not my job to pontificate about. My job is to ask whether this advances or U.S. involvement in such an invasion advances U.S. interests. Here's what I worry is about to happen, and you can sort of see the map in front of you. Many of you are familiar with it. As Israel proceeds to a ground invasion in Gaza, which looks increasingly inevitable by the day, I'm worried that will mire Israel in a war in the south. That will leave it vulnerable to an attack from the north, from Hezbollah, who has made very clear that that is their red line for attacking. They may not do it instantly. They may wait to Israel's detriment for when Israel is mired in a urban conflict in some of the most difficult terrain to achieve military victory, to strike from the north, Israel's then in a two-front war. There's no reasonable scenario in which if Israel's own existence is on the line, the U.S. isn't going to get involved militarily to protect Israel. However, that's a red line that crosses the pre-specified boundaries of Iranian-backed militias from the Houthis in Yemen to the Badr Brigade in Iraq that will then cause them, as they've said, and they've already gestured accordingly, to strike U.S. targets in the region. Keep in mind, we have our largest embassy in Baghdad that has us once again, all over again, in a long-term, prolonged, likely no-win war in the Middle East, all the while with Israel mired in the south in Gaza, effectively taking civilian casualties that'll be unavoidable on both sides of this, that cause international allies, even U.S. allies, to then turn their backs on Israel. And to what end? Even if Israel is successful in toppling Hamas, with no clear plan of what fills the vacuum other than a likely Hamas 2.0. So when you think about the range of criticisms of Israel entering Gaza, I want to be very clear about what my position is. You'll hear many voices on the left worried about concerns relating to proportionality or humanitarian concerns. I'm actually prepared to put that to one side. Israel has a right to exist and a right to defend itself. But I worry about two separate questions that I don't believe have been debated sufficiently. Is Israel even likely to succeed in that ground invasion? And even if it does achieve its stated objective, of toppling Hamas, will that victory merely be Pyrrhic in nature? When someone other than Hamas, just as ISIS succeeded Al-Qaeda, what succeeds Hamas 1.0 might be a worse version, if history teaches us, what might happen here all over again. So these are my concerns. I think that these are concerns that we ought to debate in the open. I worry that many of my fellow contenders in this GOP primary, intelligent enough people, many of them are, are afraid to have this debate 
for fear of being labeled, as I incorrectly have been, anti-Israel. To the contrary, the vision that I'm laying out here for our engagement or non-engagement in Israel is actually a deeply pro-Israel vision that is consistent with the original Zionist project altogether. The idea that Israel was never supposed to rely on the fleeting sympathies of the rest of the world, but to say that this is the Jewish state that belongs rightly for all of history to now, to the Jewish people. And that is why Israel exists, is why it came into existence, to be able to fully defend itself as it's capable of doing. And I worry that we instead now find ourselves in muddied waters, and we have played a role in muddying those up waters in the worst of all worlds, where the U.S. is in some ways, if not expressly, at least implicitly, constraining Israel's ability to defend itself, while at the same time muddying the waters not enough for Israel to fully seek out its own well-defined missions. And so we have a choice to make. I come out on the side of voting against. I'm strongly against. I think I'm the first presidential candidate to be explicit about this against the $106 billion aid package working its way through Congress right now as we speak. First, on principled grounds that we should not conflate these different conflicts where there are very different issues at stake. But even on the elements of each, against further funding to Ukraine, and yes, even against funding Israel in this conflict without a clear understanding of what the objectives are for success. It's not up to us as a big brother to demand that Israel answer to us. Israel doesn't owe us any answers. Israel owes it to itself to defend itself. But if the U.S. is going to be involved, then we need to understand with clarity what exactly are the objectives, what exactly is the plan for success, and what exactly is the plan for succession after success, without which we can't possibly decide what we're going to fund and what we're not, what we are or are not going to support militarily. So this is a vision of foreign policy that, yes, advances American interests, but my concern is that as we are instead mired in conflicts in Ukraine that drive Russia further into China's hands, that we're mired in another no-win war, prolonged war in the Middle East, the ultimate beneficiary of it is, of course, none other than our ultimate adversary, Communist China. Communist China would be pleased to see us deplete our military resources. Look at the artillery. Look at how much we've sent to Ukraine. One and a half million rounds of artillery. We're producing about 20,000 per month. We have trade-offs. It's a zero-sum game. Even look at the amount that was stored by the U.S. and Israel, 300,000 rounds or so, that we previously sent to Ukraine that we might now regret. Communist China is the ultimate winner in this, and what I worry is that the window for potential invasion of Taiwan or annexation of Taiwan expands further closer to the present, the more likely we are to be mired in conflicts elsewhere in the world. And then if China does choose to invade Taiwan, this is the one instance in which it would be and is in the interest of the U.S. to intervene to make sure that Taiwan in the foreseeable future is not annexed by China. In that respect, and before wrapping this up, that'll be the final area that I offer you my views on before getting to discussion with Michael. I'm worried that if China invades or annexes Taiwan today, we will then forever have an economic gun to our head because of our reliance for our modern way of life on the semiconductors produced in Taiwan. The little chips that power these phones, those cameras in the back, these lights, that power our entire modern way of life, they're manufactured on a tiny island off the a tiny set of islands off the southeast coast of China. And if China invades today, I believe that we have to depart from the current consensus position in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party of strategic ambiguity to move to strategic clarity. To be clear that yes, 
we, the United States of America, will defend Taiwan for the foreseeable future, at least until Taiwan has achieved, the U.S. has achieved semiconductor independence from Taiwan, at which point we can then suitably resume our current posture of strategic ambiguity from a greater position of strength while fortifying our homeland in the meantime, cyber defenses, super EMP defenses, nuclear defenses on down, achieved semiconductor self-sufficiency while also putting Taiwan on notice to appropriately increase its own military expenditures as a percentage of GDP from less than 2% where it is today to closer to 5% where it needs to be, which is what makes Israel such a good partner is that it actually pays for its own national self-defense. So this is a realist view of foreign policy. I will admit, <laughs> I'm an outsider to politics. I built my career in the world of business. My parents came to this country with no money. In a single generation, I've gone on to found multiple multi-billion dollar companies. Did it while marrying my wife, raising our two sons, following our faith in God. I did not imagine that I was going to be running for U.S. president, even if you asked me two years ago or a year ago. That being said, I think it is going to take an outsider coming in outside of that consensus establishment in both the Republican and Democratic Party alike to not only bring realism to our domestic policy. This is a speech I gave a number of weeks ago right in this town of how we're going to shut down 75% of the federal bureaucracy, how we are going to restore the integrity of a three-branch constitutional republic that would make George Washington proud, but also a foreign policy that, yes, would make George Washington proud, too. A foreign policy that truly puts the interests of the American homeland and the American citizenry first and does it in a way that not only achieves peace through strength, but achieves here at home, once again, our strength through achieving peace. Thank you very much for the warm welcome. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Michael, thank you for the invitation as well, and, and I welcome the dialogue. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. Okay. Great to have you here. Um, where do we start? Let me ask you something that has nothing to do with foreign policy. Oh, it's sorry. Fair enough. Thank you. No. Uh, why, why are you a Republican? Or when did you become a Republican? Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a party man. Even now, I'm not a party man. I'm using the Republican Party as a vehicle to advance what I see as a pro-American agenda that this country is hungry for, in need of. And I do cringe at the characterization of our domestic and foreign policy divisions through the caricature of this red versus blue or Republican versus Democrat vision. A lot of people wonder, you know, as we speak, we don't have a Speaker of the House and everybody's fretting over this, as though that was the main threat that we face in the United States, the absence of a Speaker. These are symptoms of the fact that the Republican versus Democratic divide elides the real conflict in this country. And the real conflict in this country, the real divides between the 80% of us who believe in the ideals of the American Revolution, who believe in free speech, in meritocracy, in the pursuit of excellence, in the rule of law, and a fringe minority, 20% or less in this country, who hates our country and the values that we're founded on. That's the real divide in this country. It's not black versus white or red versus blue. And so, you know, I uh, have, have voted Republican more than, I've, I've never voted Democrat. I voted Libertarian in my first election back in 2004. 
but I consider myself an American. I consider myself a, a unapologetic American constitutionalist, and I'm using the Republican Party as a vehicle because we live in a two-party system. It, it, it's interesting the way you put it, though, that you're, you're, you're using the Republican Party for the vehicle. Why, why did you choose that yeah. vehicle? Well, I think the Democratic Party is lost. Uh, I think, I think it, is, it, is, it is beyond lost cause. And a party that has pledged fealty to a new religion of race, gender, sexuality, and climate, it's almost bordering on an establishment clause violation of a religion of modern secularism that's using the tools of the state and the private sector to foist onto the American people a set of fundamentally anti-American values that are hostile to our national identity. And so there's, there's zero chance that I find any, any alignment with the domestic vision of the, of the Democratic Party. The Republican Party, by contrast, at least offers promise in that it is a blank slate right now. Right? It, is, it, is a, it is an opportunity to redefine what it means to be a Republican. And to me, I want to redefine what it means to be a Republican to be unapologetically pro-American, unapologetically in favor of the ideals of the American Revolution. And I think it's worth remembering those are not moderate ideals. The idea that you get to speak your mind freely as long as I get to in return. The idea that I we settle get, our differences through I debate, to be, these are radical ideas. I don't get to be completely free. <laughs> there are two things at Hudson you can't be. You can't be pro-drugs and you can't be anti-Israel. Other than that, we have total, total freedom. <laughs> well, I think that's that. But you're free to be at Hudson. <laughs> I, well, I, I suppose that was a choice. No, no, no. There's no other choice. But Hudson. <laughs> Every, see, everywhere see. else, the restrictions are greater. I see. Uh, I see. Well, look, I think that uh, I think that these are certainly in the American landscape. These are extreme ideals, and I think that that's one of the things we need to get comfortable with embracing. Is my model of national unity is not one of showing up in the middle and compromising. First of all, that assumes that there's only two poles to the political spectrum. I don't think that's true. But second of all, the thing that unites us as Americans are the extreme ideals of the American Revolution, the radicalism of the American Revolution. And I think that we live in a moment where we would do well to revive those ideals that unite us across our skin-deep differences. And so that's what I'm doing in this race. Okay, I'm with you on everything you say up to when you start talking about foreign policy. <laughs> well, that's why I'm here. I believe in open so debate, and let's, we, we uh, let, came here intentionally. Let, let's start. Let, let's start with uh, with your idea about breaking up Russia and China. And let me start asking you this way: yeah. Every president since I don't know, certainly Bush, maybe even before Bush, has come in saying the guy before me didn't understand Russia, but I've got it. Um, and you're so you're you're in this tradition. Why do you think all of the guys from Bush on, what did, what did they get wrong and how are you going to do it differently? So I'm a critic of George Bush on a lot of things, particularly the post 9-11 response as it related to Iraq in particular. But I will say one thing. Before 9-11, actually the Bush administration did flag the risks of the 2001 treaty of good neighborliness and cooperation between Russia and China. Were it not for 9-11, I think the Bush administration was on track to prioritize further dismantling that alliance. So, so I'll give credit where credit's due. I think they, at least till 9-11, did recognize that threat. So I'm not sure that they had it wrong so much as that they were distracted by what was initially the necessity and then what was projected to be the necessity of a focus on the Middle East. Now, part of my view is where have we missed it in the, in the Obama years and even before Bush as well? 
I think our post-Cold War policies of over-expanding NATO, people obsess over the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, I, I believe in keeping our commitments, but completely thrown out the window the James Baker not one inch commitment that he made to Gorbachev has consistently, I mean, NATO expanded more after the fall of the USSR than it ever did during the existence of the USSR when supposedly well, the whole go, point of it was to curb with, the USSR. Let's with, let's that was go, part of the mistake. Let's go with Obama, yeah. oh, because Obama had the same spirit that you have. I don't think so. No? no how, do, how, does your, how does your- I believe in actually do, drawing red lines and keeping them, credible red lines. So I'm not gonna make up some red line in Syria and then do nothing when they cross it. When I talk about, I mean, there were, there were implicit, I'll make them explicit, red lines in that speech right there. We draw credible red lines grounded in our self-interest and we will, and there's a reason why no other Republican has the spine to say we will defend Taiwan for the foreseeable future at what, least until what, certain conditions what, have been met. What's your red line with Putin? The red line with, well, that presumes that we are, we haven't have a understanding of what those were in the first place. So my red line would come out of the deal that we would do. He does not touch a NATO ally. He doesn't touch a region of what would be a sovereign Ukraine that comes out of the deal that we would do. But we have to give each other a reason to enter that deal. Why, why do so you, reopen economic relations is, what, I think, the key element of how we open that deal. Now is a moment where I think we have to do what Nixon did with Mao. And, and I use Mao as an example because Putin's bad. Mao was worse. We didn't trust Mao, just as we shouldn't trust Putin. But Nixon, as a person who shares my skepticism of the administrative state and the bureaucracy around him, pulled Mao out of the chokehold of Brezhnev-led USSR, and I think Putin's like the new Mao. So we don't trust him, but we can trust him to follow his self-interest. And so opening economic relations with Russia and standing by the commitment we made in 1990 that NATO would not further expand, combined with, yes, freezing approximately those current lines of control, is a basis for getting far more in return at a moment where there are kinks in the wasn't, armor wasn't in the Russia-China relationship. Wasn't that the theory of, uh, of Joe Biden when he, when, he, uh, when he lifted the sanctions on Nord Stream 2? I mean, I think we bombed Nord Stream 2. So I think no, that there's nothing, but, that's, but, there's nothing that's... No, but under, but the, uh, under Joe Biden, we bombed Nord Stream 2. No, the, when, when Biden came in, he took the sanctions off Nord Stream 2 so that there could be economic relations between Germany and Russia. So, Michael, with, with whatever respect, ha that, Whatever think, happened to Nord Stream 2, I don't believe that Biden I think, bonded, but that happened after, I think we that happened after the Russian... directly consented to, to the but, bombing. Well, we don't, we don't need to argue with that, yeah. but that happened after the, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, but the, the, Russian, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine came after... We, we opened up economic relations with, between Russia and Germany. We didn't really, op we didn't open up economic relations between Russia and Germany. Germany opened relations. We still have long had closed relations with Russia. And I think the other thing that I would say, I mean, I, let's just sort of, for, for I think a productive conversation because the world, world of politics have gotten acclimated to this. I think that the impeachment by analogy to Democrat is, I don't think, really a particularly useful frame of whether it's similar to an Obama or similar to a Biden. Turns out my foreign policy is dramatically different from that of Biden and Obama, as well as that of Bush and much of the historical Republican base. But let's just start without the partisan filters asking what actually makes sense. We've absolutely restricted economic relations with Russia. I don't think it's productive. There's a lot that happened before Russia invaded Ukraine. Angela Merkel made some disastrous comments about the Minsk Accords just being about biding time as we were arming Ukraine to the teeth in the meantime. Putin asking for a reinstantiation of the commitment that we made in 1990 that NATO wouldn't expand, we couldn't give it to him. So there's a lot of factors that 
preceded, and I believe precipitated in part, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But the question is, from where we are now, I'm not here to blame the people who came before me, Republican or Democrat. As the next president, what do I want to do? I want to lead us to advancing the American interest of weakening, if not dismantling, the Russia-China alliance, but to do it while securing peace on reasonable terms that allow Ukraine's own sovereignty to come out intact, which I worry is not exactly the path that we're on. The spring offensive that became the summer offensive that became effectively the non-effective offensive that ever was. This is not on track to succeed even for the people of Ukraine and the Ukrainian boys who are dying there. And at some point, I think we're allowed to, as human beings, also ask the question about the Russian boys who are dying over there and make sure we never get to the point of the American boys who will be dying over there to ask the question of to what end are we fighting or fueling a war for Russian-speaking regions, most of whom believe that they shouldn't be part of Ukraine. They haven't been represented in the Ukrainian parliament for nine years. Either we believe in democracy or we don't. And so I think that in many ways that we're, even if you're using the pro-democratic argument that fails on Ukraine, but I think the national self-interest for the United States, that's where we more obviously fail flatly. What, what makes you, so when I look at Russia yeah. and China, they look very happy together to me. What, what are you seeing in that relationship that makes you think we can do a deal with Putin? Where he's sure. So I, I think that there are cracks in that relationship if we're opening our eyes and willing to see it. I referenced it in my opening remarks. I think it is not an accident that after the 2022 No Limits Partnership meeting, right after they part ways, Putin sends weapons to India and to Vietnam, both of which share a border with China. He was sending a signal. I think it's not an accident that in Northeast China, they have yet to be able to complete the completion of a railroad, which would be an economic boon to Northeast China, which is struggling in absence of that railroad able to make it to the sea, but for running through a part of Russia. So fundamentally, it is my belief that Putin does not enjoy being the kid brother in the relationship that he's in with Xi Jinping, but that's the position we've put him in when we've cut off relations from the West and when you describe someone as an enemy, I mean, it's one thing to call China our adversary and our enemy. I am comfortable with that because I think it is grounded in truth with respect to, there's only two superpowers right now and a world war requires two superpowers with allies, neither of which is obviously able to defeat the other. That's the state we're in. But if you then start calling everybody else an enemy, we can go down the list, but Russia's high on the list, you start incentivizing them to behave like an enemy. And that's exactly what we've done, as opposed to moving to what could be a trilateral international order between the US, Russia, and China, rather than the bilateral one that favors China currently with Russia in their camp. And so I think that those are examples of evidence of cracks in that armor that I think we should be exploiting now and using the Ukraine war, more precisely the end of it, as one of the catalysts that helps us pull Russia out of its relationship with China, by renormalizing economic relations with Russia, making a hard commitment relating to NATO, not admitting Ukraine to NATO. Yes, territorial concessions that track what I think is actually the reality of pretty close to what self-determination there would look like anyway. And I think that would be a good outcome for the US. I think it would be a good outcome for Ukraine to come out with its own sovereignty intact, backstopped by actual US interests at issue that's a far more secure peace than whatever path they're on right now. And I think it would be good for Russia, which doesn't have to be a bad thing for the US. And I worry the main obstacle to doing this deal 
is that last part of what I said. Would this be good for the US? Yes, it would. Would this be good even for Ukraine? I think it actually would be good for the people of Ukraine. But the thing that's stopping us is the idea that there could be some good in this for Russia. And I, and I think that that's a datedness to a Cold War mentality that presumes the USSR exists and that regime change in Russia is somehow, though you're not supposed to say that out loud, the lurking agenda that's actually at work here. I think that that is not the way that we should be making decisions as US policymakers as opposed to asking what's best for the US interest which is part of my case for generational change in who leads this country from the White House. I let's, do think it's going to take a different generation. Let's, 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 to move, to, let's move to Iran. So sure. Iran has attacked, Iran or its proxies have attacked the United States since Joe Biden came into the presidency between 80 and 90 times, including eight or nine times in the last week. Um, what would you do uh, about that? So I think that one of the travesties of the Biden foreign policy agenda is that we have been indirectly funding multiple sides of conflict in the Middle East. I think the $6 billion hostage release was, uh, exchange for the hostages was disastrous. I think it sets an awful precedent. I think a lot of the so-called aid that we have been providing, including in Gaza and other parts, parts of the Middle East, have not actually strengthened our position here in the Middle East. And so that's the first observation I would make is that our funding of two sides of conflicts have been a disaster. I think at the same time, it's been disastrous for us to open up this year. I mean, I think this was, this was one of the most foolhardy decisions that has been under-discussed in the United States, was opening up a serious discussion about nuclear technology transfer to Saudi Arabia, which I think is also I want to, I want to keep, the balance I want to, of power. I, mean, I want to keep you on Iran. Iran. Yeah, but this relates to Iran. So how, how, this, this how, what are we going to do about the, uh, Iran's aggression? Well, I, the, dis the disagreement, what I'm getting at, yeah. the disagreement I have with you, yeah. Is that is that you you say there are deals out there to be had without the application of talk about that in Russia's case? Without, yeah, but uh, but I feel Iran's like, different. I, I, Iran's different. I, I, that's what I want to get at. Uh, Iran's different because I don't I, because I don't think that these actors Russia, Russia, China, and Iran can be uh, that there's a that there's a, a dial that we can turn. Yeah, I think Russia and, and I, come I, and come to agreement with them without the serious threat of military force. So. In, that's where I think in Russia's that's where case, I think you and I disagree. So, that's so I, I think one of the areas where we maybe have a different prism is I don't have an overarching uh, theory that analogizes each of these regions to another because I think they're fundamentally different. Okay, so, so, I let's, think we have let's, to so let's go on around. Analyze, not analogize. That'd okay. be one description of my approach to foreign policy. So analyze the Russian situation. Right. We had a deep how do we, discussion we? How, how, how do we stop Iran Iran's from, attack, a different discussion. from attacking us and our allies? So now let's independently analyze Iran. I think that the deterrence that the Arab nations, including Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Israel, which let's just acknowledge, or you know, I don't know if you're supposed to say this or not, but has nuclear capabilities. Israel, Turkey, and the Arab countries do not like Iran. And it is not in their interest for Iran to expand its sphere of influence. You're talking about a country in Iran that's what, 3% of the economic might or might of any capacity of China. It's a sideshow compared to China. I think that that successfully, if we provide a diplomatic Iron Dome for Israel combined with Turkey and Saudi Arabia and other Arab nations, which who's, in whose self-interest it already is not for Iran to expand, these are already, we have a balance of power. It's not like it's a comfortable balance of power, but we've had a balance of power in the Middle East that I think can work to contain conflict on its own. 
And even with the best except, intentions, except, our involvement has actually exacerbated Iran, the risks that the U.S. faces. Iran has been expanding quite, quite start, in a startling way, and it's actually attacking Americans directly. In how do we stop the attacks on America? Well, I think that there's something baked into that premise that I'd like to challenge. It's that America should have been in the places that we were being attacked. I mean, why, where are they attacking us? They're attacking us in places that we shouldn't have been. Why are we in Syria? Why are we in Iraq? We shouldn't have been in either of those places. So it comes back to my premise that we, in the name, I'm not saying it was bad intentions. I think there were some bad intentions involved, but I think it's mostly an outdated vision of foreign policy, of interventionist foreign policy that put us in a place to be attacked that we couldn't have been attacked and then ask the question of how we're going to stop that from happening. The best if we, solution is we shouldn't have been there in the first place. Okay, so we shouldn't have been there in the first place. But we're in there. The Arab countries, we're there, Turkey and Israel but can we're, achieve but their we're, deterrence. But we're there now. So, yeah. so we pull out. Well, I think that I never doesn't want... That, doesn't so that, gonna be doesn't out, that reward Iran so for I'm aggression? Out, I'm not going to be pulling out in a moment where we're being attacked, right? But, but asking a fundamental question, the premise of it, we're never going to be... We're never going to be leaving a region with guns to our backs, okay? Or that's not the way, that's not the ideal way to exit. It should be from a position of strength. But if you want to just understand how we think about Iranian deterrence, I think it would have been, and in the future can be, most effective when it's the Middle Eastern countries that have the, as neighbors, vested interest to protect against Iranian aggression we have to, to be left to themselves to do it. But we have to... What do we do we now? A position of strength now. How do we establish that? So I think the position of strength right now is, let's just talk about like what's at hand, right? This is not an academic discussion. We're in the middle of a serious, imminent war right now. I think we should provide full diplomatic support and intelligence support for Israel to fully defend itself. But and I think not, that that's But that's correct. not going to deter Iran from, well, sh from shooting at us. I'm not... I don't... I don't I disagree with you. I think if Israel's fully defending itself and its national right to exist, I think that there is plenty of deterrence baked in. I mean, the U.S. is nuclear equipped. Israel is nuclear equipped in a way that Iran is not even close to either of those nations. And so I do think that the threat, the idea that we're somehow at risk or our principal military risk is Iran somehow striking the United States of America is, I think, a straw man compared to where our actual threat is, which is communist China that has a far greater leverage over the United States, and every iota of further involvement in well, this conflict why do you think weakens it, us why, versus China. Why, why do you think Iran is attacking us? Well, I want to just ask you precisely what are you referring to? You're referring to Iranian-backed militias hitting targets hitting, in they, other areas of the Middle East. They hit, they, hit two, they hit two U.S. bases in Iraq, or more actually, yeah. in the last couple of days. They're fundamentally hostile to Israel. We know that. And they're fundamentally hostile to the United States as an extension and a supporter of Israel. We know that, too. And they're fundamentally hostile independently to the West and the United States of America. So we know that. Yeah. So we have a hostile nation in the Middle East. So the what question, do we do about that? Well, the question is, I start with the principle of do no harm, right? We, are, we have done more harm to U.S. interests over the last 25 years of our involvement in the Middle East than we have aided it. And we have frankly, a bigger objective to address that we're weaker in being able to address when we're drawn into yet another no-win war in the Middle East. $33 trillion in national debt, six and a half trillion of which was attributable to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, we're, we, and are where, we, are, we are where we are. They're shooting at us. We want them to stop. You, want to, you said we have to have a position of strength. I want to, I want yeah. to see your vision of position so, of strength. So I would say from the present, if you're hitting U.S. targets, you will have hell to pay for it. We have to be crystal clear about that and say it, but against the backdrop of also being clear that our longer-term plan 
is to exit these Middle East engagements that we should not have been in the first place. Uh, and I uh, believe that will be sufficient. What does hell to pay for it look like? Well, I think that I think that it depends on the scale of the attack. And this is also where you're going to get into telegraphing exactly what specific bombs you're going to drop where. No, we're not going to get into that but discussion. You're talking, I, I know, I want to make sure that I understand that uh, hell to if pay, you hit, if you hit hell to US, pay is economic sanctions, military action, if, all of the above. Here's my view, and I've said the same thing with respect to defending Taiwan. We will defend Taiwan militarily. I'm not going to get into the specific examples let's, of what we're going to do. Let's with Iran. Same I'll, thing with I'll, Iran. I'll move to the Taiwan. Yeah, but, but I'm going to give you an example of yeah. what deterrence actually looks like. I think it's going to be every bit as effective here as well. You will have hell to pay for it if you're hitting U.S. targets, but you can do so against the backdrop of knowing that also we are not going to be here forever. To the contrary, my goal is to exit our engagement in these regions of the Middle East that we should not have been in the first place. And I believe that will be more than sufficient deterrence to make sure U.S. Where, targets where, aren't hit. What, what, is, what is the value of the Middle East and our positions in it to American foreign policy? I think that our involvement in the Middle East and our presence, physical presence in the Middle East, has not served U.S. interests. So you'd get out entirely? I would look to a path for as much disengagement from the Middle East as possible. And, and with all of those energy resources uh, and the role that they play central to the, to the economy of the world, if they fall under China and Iran, what happens, what happens to our economic security that is your fundamental... So, so I don't think they're going to fall under China and Iran. I think we actually, again, have it backwards in that framing where China's not a natural ally of any Muslim country. I mean, China is the country that has a million religious minorities, Muslims in concentration camps, subject to forced sterilization, communist indoctrination, and worse. But it is the U.S. involvement in the Middle East that actually is drawing China into what would otherwise be an unnatural engagement for China itself. You know, talk about energy security, we might find some common ground here for sure. I do believe our energy security is national security. We have hampered our own ability in the name of this climate cult to shackle energy production here in the United States. I don't think Russia would have gone for Ukraine or had the confidence to if we had been a net exporter of energy at the time that Russia made that decision. And our way of dealing with the Middle East is reducing its leverage that it has over the United States by drilling and fracking and burning okay, coal another, in this another so issue, that's the answer. Another issue we agree on. We agree on attacking wokeness. Uh, uh, unlocking fundamental energy. Fundamental unlocking energy. But unlocking energy but, affects, uh, if we're really serious about doing that, this is where I think you know, the Biden administration and the left badly fail, that reduces the stakes for what oil is or isn't coming out of the ground in Saudi Arabia or elsewhere in the Middle East. But it's still going to be, but it's still going to be central to the to the economy of the globe. And I don't think our presence there has helped the matter. Okay, that's the answer. Okay, so now on Israel, I I, I see a fundamental contradiction in what you said, because you said Israel has the right yeah. to to defend itself, and we should we should. Uh, and and we should support that right, an absolute right. But 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 yet you want to restrain it from destroying its enemy. I don't want to restrain it from destroying its enemy. So I'm glad you're smoking this out because I could, you know, I could see where this could be uh, soundbited into seeming like there's there's two two talk tracks here. Before you, before you go, can I add, can I add yeah. another part of the contradiction? Please, because because I think you're, the apparent think contradiction. You're, but I'll tell you, no, no, why I, it's I not. think you're yeah. guilty of a double contradiction. I think I'm not, but okay, but, but I'll let you state your case. Right. Okay, so uh, you you want to support Israel, uh, but, but 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 restrain it, and I then don't also it. and then also when we talked about Iran, you talked about empowering a coalition that will deter Iran, which means then that the that that Israel has to use military deterrence against uh, against Iran, which. When you were presenting your, your the scenario 
that worries you the most about yeah. getting mired in the South and then having an attack from Hezbollah, you said that could lead to war with Iran and then pull us in. If so, I'm not president, it will have so, that so, so, so the, your, your scenario for our withdrawal of building up allies who are going to deter Iran right, is, is really exactly the same scenario that you said you feared. So, so I understand your question. I'm glad you're asking it because this is important and worth being crystal clear on. So my view is, absent U.S. engagement, we have no business telling Israel what to do. I mean, if we're not debating a $16 billion bill here in Congress to fork over $16 billion of our own money when we're $33 trillion in the hole and we have been sending annual aid of $3.8 billion to Israel per year, if that's off the table, we have no business telling Israel what to do. And I actually worry, I think many people in Israel, sane voices in Israel, are frustrated by the fact that the U.S. has had the effect of impeding Israel's ability to fully defend itself by having something of a vague seat at the table. I've, I worry we've muddied the waters. So against the backdrop of U.S. disengagement militarily and financially, then I think the role of the U.S. is to provide full diplomatic support. Think about the U.N. and other institutions that have wrongly drawn, I mean, it's offensive, false equivalences between these terrorists who attack Israel and Israel's own right to defend itself. It's the job of the U.S. militarily, and then further as a friend, mutual intelligence sharing with Israel to help it defend itself fully. But now we're going to enter a different scenario. If the U.S. is going to be involved financially and militarily, if we're talking about actual U.S. resources being sent to Israel, that naturally then has to open the question of what exactly are Israel's objectives for success that the U.S. has to understand and know to understand here's what we're going to back and here's what we're not going to. So my view is, let's be consistent. And this is, I think, a deeply pro-Israel view, actually. At, at a philosophical level, it is consistent with the essence of Israel's soul, is that the Zionist project was all about the Jewish state's ability to fully defend its right to exist without being reliant on the fleeting sympathies of the rest of the world. And Israel absolutely has a right to do that, and I stand fully in favor of it. But once you muddy the waters and say, hey, 16 billion here, 3 billion there, a little bit of artillery here, and move some, move some fleets over there, then I think we muddy the waters where the U.S. has to then ask the question of, okay, if we're going to be involved, how much further are we going to be drawn in? And if Israel's in that two-front war, is there a realistic scenario in which the U.S. is actually not going to get involved militarily, which then crosses a bunch of other red lines that draw us further into prolonged conflict in the Middle East? And against that backdrop, my, it is my opinion that this ground invasion into Gaza is not going to be good even for Israel. Okay. I think the probability of success is not nearly as high as it should be for them to have the confidence to go. And even if they're successful in toppling Hamas, whatever that means, right? That itself is a vague goal. But even if you're accomplishing a, that vague I goal. A, I think it's a pretty clear goal. Well, it depends on what Hamas is. I mean, what, what is a fractured group off of Hamas in the middle of that toppling? Is that Hamas or is that not Hamas? No, they're, they're going to strip They're going to strip it of military capability and they're going to destroy the leadership. That means they're going to kill the leadership and they're going to... Killing gonna the leadership, so, 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 that, that's, that, so, so then we're shifting the terms of discussion. I think an in-and-out operation that takes out the leadership of Hamas, take the top 100, put their heads on stakes, line it across the southern border Israel to Gaza to say this will never happen again. That's reasonable to me, but that's different. There's no such thing as in and out without taking over the strip. Well, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that that's true, because I think you're, I'm, I'm not, not you purposely being vague. I think the discussion is vague right now. I'm being specific. Toppling Hamas or, or, or 
destroying Hamas, ending it, right, destroy them, is different because there's a lot of people even on that side of the debate who would say that if you take out the leadership of Hamas, there's no such thing as the leadership of Hamas. There's gonna be the next layer that comes up. So I think we have to have what we're missing today, clearly defined objectives. Very, does destroying the leadership, whose leadership? What layers of leadership? What counts as actually success? What is the post-succession plan of who governs in Gaza? We need those answers to que those questions before financially or militarily supporting what happens here. So if you, and if we're not involved, if, that's if you, fine, but Israel's you, free to decide whatever the heck it wants to do, and we support them diplomatically. But, but you've already stated that as president, you want to disengage from the Middle East. So the next step is, if I'm Israel and I see America disengaging, I'm going to do exactly what I see the UAE already doing, and that is, I'm going to go to China. And uh, Israel has, Israel has uh, a number of things that are extremely attractive to China. Um, it has a, uh, it's a cyber superpower, and it has advanced, advanced weaponry. Michael, can I just ask a question about this? Because a second ago you were talking about Israel, you were talking about your concern that China was going to go for Iran in an alliance, but now your concern is that China is going to engage with Israel. Which one is your concern? I just want to make sure I'm responding to it because you both. can't have both of those at the same time. Sure, I can. So you think that that your actual concern is that China is both going to enter an China alliance is, what, with what, Iran what, and Israel, both of whom are oh, what I enemies see, of one another in the region? Because no, that's a contradiction in the premise of the question. Not at all. Not at all. Because what I see happening is I see China empowering the most uh, disruptive element in the Middle East, which is Iran. Um, but then you're and, also concerned that they're going to have an ally of Israel if we're not. I'll explain. I'll explain. I'll explain. It's it's it, it is with its right hand, it is empowering Iran which is threatening all of our allies. And we, because I, I don't see anything different in your foreign policy premise than the premise of the Biden administration or the Obama administration. Wait, I wait, understand wait. the impeachment no, by no, 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 it's not a, no, 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 no. Use an actual no. argument. I'm, I'm making an substance. argument, yeah, I'm making an argument. I'm making an argument. decide whether it's Obama or Trump or anybody else. We're not, we're, not providing, we're not providing a defense umbrella to our allies. And they recognizing that, and they feeling that we're on, on our way out, that we're halfway out of the region already, are hedging towards China. And China understands that. China's, we, China is exploiting the contradiction in our policy, which is precisely the contradiction that you are, that you are presenting, where, where, where we only give half a guarantee to our, uh, to our allies in the face of a rising Iran. And so they have nowhere to go. They're looking for a place to go. They go to China. So I, I, and if, I think and you and China, I have a, have a different China, view. I think and Iran and China. Wants, China wants. China wants. Uh, it wants to be the leader in all of the industries that are going to drive military and economic um, innovation in the next century. And Israel is a great prize for them because it has all of that know-how. Plus, it's deeply embedded in the American security system. So I hear so you, Michael. A, so it's a I, blow I it to is... the American security system and an advantage to their. You know, with, with due respect, and, and I think this is a healthy much, dialogue, and much, I think that we're having... How much respect am I due? I think, I, think, I think a good amount of credit for bringing somebody who disagrees with you and talking to them. I'll give you credit for that. And, and I, now try to, I try to do the same because we're not having enough debate, critical debate, about critical steps that are going to affect this country for the next 20 years. So this is, this is productive in that sense. I do think it is not coherent to at once simultaneously worry that our retreat from the Middle East will somehow create a vacuum for China to at once ally with Iran, but also with Israel, when the whole premise of the discussion was that Iran and Israel, or Iran is fundamentally hostile to Israel. I don't think Israel will work this, with China. This, this, happens, more than if this they, happens in foreign policy all the time. Well, the United States is the ally of Turkey so, and Greece. 
The United States is the ally of Saudi Arabia and Israel. I don't think that's a, so of the scope of concerns, right? So if you have one menu of concerns that if the U.S. pulls out, that somehow China's going to both be allied with Iran and with Israel, and somehow that's hostile to the United States. It's called, divi versus, it's called divide and rule. Versus the alternative of the U.S. wasting our resources and militarily distracted at a time when our own resources, stockpiles, and financial capabilities are thin for China to go after Taiwan. That's the risk I worry about far more than the theoretical risk of through our retreat when they no longer have those targets to hit, that the boogeyman of China somehow is going to show up in the Middle East. Their top objective is to go for Taiwan, and they're much happier if we're wasting our own resources in the Middle East in the meantime. So if I had to pick between those two sets of concerns, it is as it relates to China, it is abundantly clear to me that the US being mired in conflicts in the Middle East and elsewhere and running thin on our own resources to be able to defend our interests elsewhere, to be able to go after Taiwan in the near term, which is a core, vital Chinese Communist Party objective, versus the vague idea that they might fill some void with Iran and Israel, but without even being really clear about what they're accomplishing for themselves or anybody getting out of that relationship, it's not even clear to me which is the greater concern. And so that's the way I look at it, which is why I think we need to have our eye on the ball. Communist China is what we need to focus on. Taiwan matters for the US national interest in a way that, for example, Ukraine does not. We need to be prepared to defend. But for me to stand up and say China. as the US president that we will defend Taiwan, it better darn well be credible that we can even defend Taiwan. And we're not going to be able to do that when we're in multi-front wars that don't advance US interests in the meantime. China, China is uh, heavily dependent on energy imports. And those imports come either come from the Middle East or, or, or transit through it to China. So if the United States is the, agree with you if, on this. If, if the United States is the dominant military power in the Middle East, it holds it holds China's uh, um, energy uh, supply lines at risk. If we leave the Middle East, so this is a productive as, point. As, 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 if we leave the Middle East, as you're saying, then we open up. It, it, it incentivizes China. So I would handle in, it. So it controls its supply lines. And I, just let me finish yeah. the argument, please. The, and the supply lines of all of its adversaries in East Asia who are equally dependent on, uh, on energy that comes from the Middle East or transits through it. So you've put your finger on an important pulse, which is China's reliance on Middle Eastern oil. I agree with you on that. I'll make two points. One is our presence in the Middle East is insufficient right now. We're in the worst of all worlds to do anything about China actually being able to get Middle Eastern oil supplies. I mean, there are multiple routes for them to get it. Here's how we deal with that actually an alliance with India, an upgrading of our alliance with India. The overwhelming majority of those Middle Eastern oil supplies go through the Andaman Sea, particularly through the Malacca Strait. I think we have a crystal clear opportunity. I've laid this out at the Nixon Library. We can talk about this more as well, of the kind of agreement with India. I mean, India would, would be thrilled to get anything even resembling the kind of agreement we have with nations like Chile or otherwise economically. That could be a win for the US to even decouple some of the dependence we have on China, but we should get more out of that a hard commitment that India would block the Andaman Sea or the Malacca Strait, which is a far more reliable way to be able to choke Chinese Middle Eastern oil supplies in the event of conflict than some vague nebulous presence in certain parts of the Middle East, but not others. That's not going to accomplish the goal. And I think it's another one of these vague wishes that somehow by being present, that's going to actually allow us to choke China's oil supplies. That's nowhere near realistic for where we are today. And having you know, a certain aid to certain countries in the Middle East and certain troops and embassies and bases in certain places is somehow going to stop us from getting Iranian to Saudi oil all the way to China 
is I think a myth that would prove false in the moment where we would need to call on it the most. And so therefore measured against those two options, yes, I favor being out of the places in the Middle East where we shouldn't have been, shifting our attention to the real threat that we face, that is communist China who we depend on for our modern way of life, whose naval capacity exceeds ours, forgetting sometimes as we do that the foundation of war is economics, industrial capacity. And so when it comes to munitions, look at the one and a half million rounds of artillery we've sent to Ukraine. We're not getting that back. We're producing 20,000 per month to replenish it. That math doesn't add up. Our naval capacity is not at a pace where it's gonna put us in a competitive position to win in a war in the South China Sea with China, God forbid if that's a scenario that we're in. Now my job is to achieve credible deterrence strategies, but my ability to offer credible deterrence as commander in chief is diminished if we're mired in another long no-win war in the Middle East, and I think that's exactly what China's rooting for. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna move to, would you have time for questions? Yeah, absolutely, But yeah. before we do, I got one last issue I gotta, I gotta raise with you, because it's, it's dear to my heart. Sure. You, uh, you, you've been, uh, in a number of your interviews, you've been talking about Azerbaijan and Armenia, and uh, uh, I, I am the most fervently pro-Azerbaijan person in Washington, D.C., so I have to raise this. And you and I together here in this interview, we're gonna do a service to the nation. Okay. Because we're going to make the term Zangazor Corridor. Uh, well, not exactly a household name, but it's going to be... It's going to be it's <laughs> at least people be, can pronounce it's, it. It's going to be something that at, at least a few thousand people are going to understand what the Zangazor Corridor is after we finish this discussion. Because the Zangazor Corridor is 100% in your worldview. This is a realist position. We should be uh, the, the, we we should be supporting the Zengazor corridor. It's good for it's good for Azerbaijan. It's good for Armenia. It's good for America. It unlocks all of the resources of, of Central Asia so that they can make it to Europe without being controlled by Russia or China. Why do you why are you against the Zengazor well, corridor? So my position, and I was very clear here to be consistent, is I don't think the U.S. And, and, and just it, it, yeah. just for the for the for everybody there, if you could just say Zangazor Corridor about seven times. Yeah, really the Zangazor Corridor. Uh, so, and, and how about the Lachin uh, Corridor? Although you'll not Lachin Corridor. Lachin. You're up on yeah. your pronunciations there too. So uh, these are corridors that you know connect potentially parts of Armenia with other parts of with let's just say the Nagorno-Karabakh region that. Historically, and this gets into some complex history here, but it's historically been ethnically, religiously Armenian Christian for a long time. There's a lot of history in all of these regions in the Soviet periphery, but 1994 onward has largely been viewed as a autonomous region governed separately that, are, that Azerbaijan has more or less just decided in a way that is not dissimilar to how Russia decided to invade the regions of the Donbass, its region that it's invaded. In 2020, first through violence, and then you know, September of this year, just a month ago, barreling right through and saying that we're not gonna respect that anymore, this is ours. And so I think that that's no more a violation of the 1994 principles that we set into motion, for example, during the Budapest Memorandum that is fetishized in corridors not far from where we are today, yet completely forgetting about other 1994 agreements made in the post-Soviet era as well. And so to be crystal clear, I'm consistent on this, I do not think the US should be militarily engaging here. My problem is the US has been indirectly engaging by writing all kinds of exemptions. What is it, section 907 exemptions or whatever that have allowed us to transfer arms to Azerbaijan that put Azerbaijan in a stronger position here. Oh, okay. wait, Special wait, exemptions wait, 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 to the trans, wait, wait. Have, Trans-Adriatic to... Pipeline for the Iran sanctions that found their way through Iran. I, I, and so my view is, 
it is, if I may just finish this thought. You can, you can finish it. Yeah, but because I, I think this, I, this is we, 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 we want periphery a, of U.S. We interests. Want, we here. want America to be aware of the Zengas work order here. That's just true. But, 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 at, but I think this is no more in America's interest to get involved here, no less in America's interest to get involved here than we are in Ukraine. But I think part of the reason why is that Ukraine and Azerbaijan have very effective lobbies in the United States of America. I mean, I think what we are fed is the conflict of good versus evil that we engage in versus a different good versus evil conflict that we turn our blind eye to, I think is an example of what I'm highlighting is inconsistency. But in my case, I would say no military engagement in either. Okay. And so that's where I just want to be crystal clear right. about what I, my position is. I, I, I think you're 100% wrong on the facts, on three, three important facts. Number one, no arms are going to Azerbaijan from the United States. None, zero. None have gone. For, none. None no, have gone to no the. No arms. No arms. No arms. There are no. The, the there, are no has, there are no. There's no. Has not transferred. No arms. No by arms. Sale. Check me on this. Check okay. me on this. Other. YouTube, Google. Check me. Via Israel or otherwise. None. None no, have no, made no, their way no, to no, Azerbaijan. No, uh, uh, Israeli arms make it. That's Israeli arms. Those are not American arms. That, those so, are not so American arms. But U.S. arms. Okay. So this no, this will be this will be a discussion for continuing. Okay. No. No. No U.S. arms. Uh, 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 number two, uh, I forgot what it was. That's okay. It's terrible. It'll come back. We can take no, this is this is too. horrible because we, we have to educate America here. <laughs> uh, but the third the third one is that uh, that Karabakh is Azerbaijan. Oh no, no 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 no! According this is this is no, wrong. Karabakh this is, is Azerbaijan. Wrong. Wait no wait. I mean hey, you got your word. You got, let me just get it's a word like the Donbas saying the Donbas is Russia then. No. Russian no, no, Karabakh is Azerbaijan, recognized by the, by the international community as Azerbaijani territory. Again, check me on this. You'll see. And, and it was multi-ethnic until Azerbaijan ethnically cleansed it. So that's the... In, I think you in, meant in to 19, say Armenian, in, but... Yeah. What did I say? I'm sorry. I think, I think you meant to say Armenian. Uh, oh, thank you and for that's correcting okay. me. I know, no, I know no, there's no, a confusing yes. issue, so I won't Armenia, fault you for it. No, no, no. But, no, no. Armenia, Armenia... But, but it wasn't an ethnic cleansing, but oh, you meant to say Armenia. Armenia... Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that, actually. Armenia ethnically cleansed it in, in, in 1993, and it's recognized internationally as, as, uh, as Azerbaijani. So we'll agree so to disagree were, on the international yeah, recognition right. point. But... And the corridor... The corridor... Azerbaijan is the only country in the world that borders both Russia and Iran. If there is no Zengazor corridor through Armenia, and we're just talking about a transport corridor, we're not talking about taking, we're not talking about taking territory. An economic and transport corridor, which Armenia agreed to in the November 9th tripartite agreement, uh, at the, uh, the, the ceasefire agreement at the end of the war. If that, if that corridor opens up, it opens up the economy of, of, um, of Armenia. Mr. Pashinyan would like it, and if it's not opened up, then Azerbaijan has to connect to the West and to its um, exclave of Nachivan through Iran. So we strengthen Iran, and we push Armenia into the arms of Iran as well if we don't open up that corridor. So in, that's in addition to all that it does for Central Asia. Yeah, so, so, so it's, my, it, it's it, it, and, I, oh, I, I know what it was. I know what it was. I can't, sorry. Your second point. Thing, my, Your my second, second point. point. Yeah. And then we'll take some audience yeah. questions. Yes, we will. Yeah. We will. But, but that there's a strong Azerbaijani lobby, and what, there's no, you're the only person in American politics who doesn't think there's an Armenian lobby. This is just ridiculous. I mean, I think, I, I mean, I think Sokar I mean, has funded I, I, a very this, effective operation in the United where, States. Show me where, show me. I mean, the Panesta Group, let's start with that, right? The, the okay. ex, ex Hillary Clinton, the, the, you can the, go straight down the, 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 the ploofs, I mean, you could go straight down the list. You're, uh, 
Nancy, I'm not doing the impeachment Nancy, by Democrats Nancy, thing, but I'm Nancy, just saying these are the people who are, who Nancy are lobbying Pelosi, the Nancy Pelosi, Menendez, Shifty Schiff, all of them. There isn't a single, your talking points are the same as, as Schiff's. So say, well, we're, again, I'm not doing the impeachment by, oh, you said the same thing as somebody else thing, but no, look at the people who are lobbying for us. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. of the most prominent lobbying firms in the U.S., but put that to one side. You, you brought it up. I think that this, this does not directly, you know, we talk about Russia, Ukraine, talk about China, Taiwan, talk about, you know, of course, what's happening in Israel. These directly relate to the American interest. I want to be crystal clear, despite the fact that I have tried to be educational about what's happening here to a lot of people who have no awareness of it. This is an area where I believe we are being inconsistent for the good versus evil crowd, right? I mean, this is a battle between good versus evil. That's what you've heard from much of the Republican Party. And I, I could tell you that probably the other Republican presidential candidates, until I was talking about it, never heard of Nagorno-Karabakh. I mean, that's just a fact of the matter. And so if they're talking about good versus evil in the Donbass region, which they hadn't heard about until four months before, then I think that it is inconsistent not to be talking about it in this case, where I come from the school of thought that we should not. I said this in my principles of realist foreign policy. Our military engagement should never be a moral crusade. It should be grounded in American self-interest. So I am not advocating for any American involvement here in Armenia-Azerbaijan. But that's a principled position that's consistent with the same reasons why I don't advocate for it in Russia and Ukraine either. That being said, I think that gonna, my top concern gonna, is gonna, what actually does advance American interests. And so far, thank God, we're not sending money and resources, military resources over there. But I am keen to make sure that we stop sending them to places like Ukraine, where we're on track with a bill to send $61 billion over there. So that's where I'm coming from. I'm going to convert you to this. Okay. All right. Well, I look forward we'll, to the discussion, because yeah, it's clear we'll, you, you've we'll, been we'll, close to this for a while. So the, I was here opposing you. To the Zengazor corridor. Yeah. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll open it up here. Thank you. There's a lady in the back. I have no idea who she is, but she, but she has a yellow dress on. It's very easy to see. Thank you. I'm a former Jerusalem Post reporter. My name is Carrie Sheffield. I'm a journalist. Um, great to see you, Vivek. Um, I would love to know more. How are you going to convince China and Russia to dissolve their alliance? You know, I, I understand that you know you would give some land to to Russia, you know, some Ukrainian territory, but. Number one, why would you trust that? And number two, I mean, how do you know that's sufficient leverage? Yep, so it's not going to be through persuasion, and it's not going to be through trust, because we cannot and should not trust Putin or Xi Jinping to do anything. It's out of self-interest. So there will be consequences for non-adherence to an agreement, like there is for any serious agreement, and there will be incentives to enter that agreement. So if you put yourself in each of our shoes, this is an agreement that makes sense. Reopening economic relations with Russia from, with the West, including the United States, reduces its economic reliance on China. That's one of the things they get out of it. The end of this Ukraine war, in, most importantly, the hard commitment that NATO won't admit Ukraine to NATO, this has been a longstanding objective for Vladimir Putin. But in return from that, we have to, things we can monitor, no joint military exercises between Russia and China, dissolution of the 2001 Treaty of Good Neighborliness and Cooperation. So these would be the basic principles and contours of a deal. Now, is that going to be the exact deal that gets enough? Of course it's not. These are complicated things, but these are the broad principles. I would require from our side removal of Russian military presence from the Western Hemisphere, Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela in particular. Removal of the nuclear weapons from Kaliningrad, and to the extent they're moving into Belarus from there as well. This is a reasonable deal that if you put yourself in the shoes of either party, the United States or Russia, and even Ukraine makes sense to actually see through. 
Now, I think that there's two schools of thought here. On the other school of thought, defeating Russia, ill-defined whatever that ever means, is the mainstream thought amongst most of the Republican presidential candidates. I'm not going to be somebody who says that I'm going to get a deal done instantly without telling you what the contours of that deal are. I believe in transparency, in telling you what the principles of that deal are, and that's why I've laid those out. But I'm confident that in a rapid amount of time, we would be able to reach a deal that advances U.S. interests and involves a big win for the U.S., but also small wins for each of Russia and Ukraine in the process, in the window that we're in, especially when there are at least signs of weakening or potential weakening or softness in the Russia-China relationship. So that's what I would say, and the economic lever is a big part of how we accomplish it. Thank you, Kerry. And this lady here in the black. Nice to meet you. Nice to see you speak in person. Um, my name is Amal Torres. I have a Department of Defense background, so national security and foreign policy uh, rings true in my heart. So I'm going to bring up a topic that has not been discussed too much, but related to the semiconductors, and it's about Africa. And uh, China, as we all know, currently owns a significant portion of global rare earth metals, metals required to build advanced technology and yeah. weapons. African countries have large deposits of these critical resources and are actively partnering with China and Russia. And America seemingly refuses to make meaningful attempts to foster beneficial relationships with those African countries. As president, uh, what is your plan to ensure America has access to these critical resources needed for advanced weaponry in support of our national security? It's a great question. And I think one of the great risks to our national security is the reliance on rare earth minerals in China to make, among other things, our own military equipment. You think about what an F-35 fighter jet manufactured here requires. It's pathetic that we require reliance on the very adversary who, God forbid, we're in a conflict scenario we're going to have to fight for the very parts required to fight them. That doesn't logically work. So I think there are other places to look. We'll come to Africa in a second. I mean, even if you think about Chile, look at the amount of lithium. Chile is, I think, you know, approximately, give or take, the third largest reserves of lithium that we're able, that are at least exporters are used. We could get our lithium from Chile. We're getting it from China instead. Chile exports eight times as much, as much lithium to China as they do to the United States, which itself makes no sense. So there's all other partners we can, we can explore, we can make use of here. Now, as it relates to Africa, I think that what's happened is we've let them tug on our heartstrings a little bit much, many African nations, where they say things like, when two elephants fight, the grass dies. Something like this is the expression. Well, I think that we should force them to choose to say that if you're going to accept foreign direct investment from China, then we're out. But I think right now we have been in many ways allowed to be exploited. So we say that choose us or choose China, you can't have both. I think we come out winning in that. So from foreign direct investment, from deals, I mean crippling debt deals that have capital, capitalization table structures that cripple these nations on the back end. It's an uncouth topic to talk about, but China absolutely has racist undertones in its relations with overtones, if we're able to call it that, with Africa, that the United States, despite what you'll listen to you know, a given person say on a given day here in a college campus, doesn't exist in the United States, not in any relevant way compared to China's attitudes towards Africa. They're much more naturally for the US to be an investment partner and economic ally for many of those African nations that have those rare earth minerals relative to China, but we have to make them choose. And the mistake that we've made is allowing them to have both but if we make them choose, we come out on the winning side of that, and I think China is going to be left holding the bag. That's the short answer to that question. Thank you for asking. It was a smart question.
Thank you. So uh, a, a little bird came and told me that we have to uh, bring this to an end. Oh, is that let we me, had too much fun? Okay. Yeah, let me, let me thank you a lot. And I, I, okay. I particularly appreciate that you have come to my view on Azerbaijan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I appreciate you for coming to my view on making sure that we end the war in Ukraine. <laughs> so, yeah, I want to end the war in Ukraine, too. Instead, with different methods, yeah. Okay. So uh, can, I just say, can, I, can I also just say something in, in, in closing, which is I want to thank the Hudson Institute for welcoming a presidential candidate that has views that may differ from that of, on certain of these issues at least, that may differ from that of the consensus of scholars here and other allied institutions. And I think it speaks to how we're going to revive this country. So the way we're going to revive this country is, and I want to thank you for this, more conversations like this one, open conversations. Say in public what you'll say in private. And, and I'll just close on this because it's the centerpiece of this campaign. It's a centerpiece of the revival of this nation is that the best measure of our country's health, the best measure of the health of American democracy, we say this in Washington, D.C., it's not the number of green pieces of paper in our bank account. It's not the number of ballots that are cast every November. Those things are important, but they're not the most important thing. It is the percentage of people who feel free to say what they actually think in public. Right now, we are doing poorly in this country. The only way we're going to do it is all of us, not just me, all of us. You're doing it too. I'm grateful to you. All of us starting to speak openly again. And it is in moments like these where we do have, one thing we will agree on is serious and concerning conflicts brewing in other parts of the world. We are at our strongest when we have true and unfettered debate and discussion of open ideas. And I want to thank the Hudson Institute for being among the places that fosters the kind of debate that we're going to need to revive this nation. And if we do, then I have confidence that one way or another, our best days as a nation can still be ahead of us. It's just going to take all of us starting to talk more openly again. So thank you for that. I appreciate Great. the welcome. Thank you. Can you agree with that?